and that's the beauty of it. It's it's time travel in our imagination, which is safe because it, it, because it doesn't impact what we do in the future, only it enhances it. to another episode of 1980s now a weekly examination of 1980s pop culture and it's continued influence today hey everybody my name is will and uh, joining me as always are my friends and co-hosts ken john hey guys how you doing hey guys hello 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 so uh, yeah mm-hmm. we're coming to you actually we're recording this live even right now on facebook uh, as we, uh, we're about to, well, I should let you know something, right? On this episode, we're going to speak with the author of the book, You Cannot Mess This Up, Amy Wineland mm. Daughters. I'm going to tell you about the book in just a moment and its ties uh, to our era. But mm-hmm. I wanted to let you know that we're recording this episode live right now on Facebook and YouTube so that we can include our uh, listeners here in the conversation mm-hmm. uh, as I tell you about this book. If you want to join us live, follow us on Facebook or YouTube. Subscribe to us on YouTube and you can do it too. There you go. Uh, oftentimes we give away uh, prizes uh, from uh, various sponsors. All right, cool. So, hey, yeah, look, this John, John, uh, especially I thought about you when, when I, you know, when, even when I read the summary about this book, because immediately mm-hmm. it uh, sounded like time travel was involved. Now, this is going to be one of those. Hell yeah. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is going to be one of those things where. I don't want to say too much about it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but I will tell you enough to get you interested. And even if, if it's just being safe by reading it off the publisher's notes here. Not like a trailer, not giving too much away. <laughs> Kat, you're so prescient in that you said that because in next week's episode, we're going to be talking about whether or not trailers spoil too much. So tune in on uh, the next episode. I have to a time that. travel problem. I can't do don't it. Don't miss that. Kat is, Kat's from the future. Yeah. That's what it is. Yep, there you go. I have such a time problem. Uh, but yeah, so and you cannot mess this up. A true story that never happened. Uh, suddenly, it's 1978, and, and our protagonist is forced to spend 36 hours in her childhood home with her nuclear family, including her 10-year-old self. Ooh. Over the next day Love and a half, she reconsiders Ooh. every feeling she's ever had. Everyone, every, every feeling she's ever had. <laughs> every feeling. Yes. Including this one. <gasps> Discusses current <laughs> events with dead people, gets overserved at a party with her parents, friends, and is treated to lunch at the Bonanza Sirloin Pit. Uh, Amy also begins to appreciate that memories are malleable, wholly dependent on who is doing the remembering. Mm. Uh, and giving her parents as peers mm-hmm. and her siblings as detached children. She redefines her difficult relationships with her family members and ultimately realizes that her life story matters and is profoundly significant, not so much to everyone else, perhaps, but certainly to her. Uh, now, mm, the, the okay. good thing about this book, and I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, and it's, I think it's within the first three chapters or so that you learn this, that when Amy travels back in time, her guide, she has a guide of sorts that delivers her to the past, mm. says to her- Rufus! So I thought <laughs> yes. the title of the book, You Cannot Mess This Up, was like, don't screw this up. Right. But actually it's okay. more her guide says to her, mm-hmm. you can't mess anything up. So unlike the, you know, the oh. structure of most time travel, at least certain, certain ones. Oh. Yeah. Where it's linear and you're, you know, anything you do sort of affects the future or it's, mm-hmm. it creates a branch mm-hmm. timeline that you go on. No. It's very much, you wow. can just do whatever you want and without any consequences. I thought the same thing. I thought from the title, right. And, and I, I haven't done any more research beyond just the blurb that you were reading, but- Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a title like, hey, whatever you do, you can't mess this up. But it's not yeah. a causality time travel thing. It's like, relax, have fun, 
punch any babies you want. You can't mess it up. Oh yeah. no. Yeah. I'm intrigued. John, again, John and I, not to single, not to leave cat out, but John and I have expressed our mutual love, mm-hmm. affection, interest mm-hmm. in time travel, mm-hmm. films, TV shows specifically. And we, you know, often yep. will recommend to each other, Hey, check this one out. I don't know anything mm-hmm. about it, but I know there's time travel in it. <laughs> you know, haven't seen it. Got time travel. Check it out. Yeah. Have, have either of you or folks in the chat considered or, or, or longed to or imagined if only I was able to travel back in time to some particular moment? I'm hesitant about in general, right? Go, like if I could go back, I would hesitate because uh, like I, I like where I am. I like who I am. I don't want to change anything. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anything mm. to get messed up. And, um, you know, I'm a product of all the experiences that came before me. But if I knew I would still basically end up, you know, in the same spot. Yeah. Yes. There, there's if a, you knew you couldn't mess it up, right? What if it's like, what is this mm-hmm. like Amy's book, yeah. right? Yeah. If I couldn't mess it up and I knew I could, you know, yeah, it would be basically the same. There are some moments in time where I'd go back and be like, yeah, I could have said that better. I could have, you know, <laughs> done a better job at that. And I would, I would go mm-hmm. back so that it wouldn't be something uh, plaguing me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. There's some things I would make a, a make a different move um, mm-hmm. yeah. or say a different thing. Go yeah. Left and yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, like I like to think that I could change something, but again, I can't mess it up. Like that would be the concern. Yeah. Like you don't want to go back yeah. and go the butterfly wings. So, yeah. so I quite like yeah. the, the premise of, of this book with the hope that I could make something maybe better, but maybe not mess it up. Right. So, sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I, when you say we're recording this live, I just saw uh, Marcus in the chat saying this subject has been on his mind a lot lately. And it has mm-hmm. been for me too. Mm-hmm. And when I knew we were going to talk about this, I keep thinking about, like, I wish it's that thing where you like to like go back and meet your younger self and give them advice. Right. It's, that yeah. kind of thing. it's not that so much yeah. that I want to relive something, right? but you know, in, in the last 18 months or so, I have been an unemployed, self-employed pauper, but mm-hmm. doing something I absolutely adore. And so many times I went, damn it. I wish I had started this like in 1991, 1992 when YouTube <laughs> <Right>. was brand new. <laughs> Yes. Because I never occurred to me I could just do this myself because I always thought of, you know, producing content as being, you know, well, something you do in a team in a television Ooh. station with these cameras and these cameras. And it used to be, of course. But right. if I had known back then how much I would love doing this, mm-hmm. I would have derailed my entire career and just started doing that right away. You know, because sure. it wasn't until I was shoved out of the nest as a baby bird saying, mm-hmm. well, now what are you going to do? I guess I'll do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish I had said, I'm just going to do this. This is my choice. Yeah. I would have loved to have found the thing that brings me the most joy way, way earlier and just skipped all these other careers. Yeah. yeah I think the same thing. Now, I've considered it many times, you know, and, and most oftentimes it was in those contexts sort of what Kat was alluding. Like, I wish I had said this or I wish I mm. hadn't said this, mm-hmm. but it, because maybe because I'm such a fan of time travel, you know, and the, like John said, that cause <laughs> the the, uh, the issues they have with you know causation or causality. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I would. Yes, I get too caught up in it, like this idea that well, I can't do that. Then I wouldn't have the kids I have. Then I'd be married to the wife I have. Whatever. Right. And it's like, well, I don't want to change all those things. Uh, I can't just live in the fantasy of fixing one thing. Yeah. But the premise of this book, yeah, yeah it's a, it's a lot more attractive for that very reasons you're suggesting. And I think probably the the things I would change would be more like what you're suggesting, John. It's just and cat too. 
mm-hmm. tweaking something about myself or helping myself maybe have, uh, be more confident or a greater self-esteem mm-hmm. or, you know, sure. and, yeah. and use that to pursue things that I, you know, had more passion or interest uh, in earlier mm-hmm. in my, in my mm-hmm. life and career than mm-hmm. I, than I did. Um, and see what happens as a result of that. And I see more people in our live chat talking about, you know, kind of, I think what is one of the most, the most common time travel fantasies, which is just go back and invest in this company or go back and get these lottery (laughs) numbers and things like that. And probably two years ago, that would have been my pick too. (laughs) And it's, it's weird that the kind of clarity that I've been able to get just recently Mm -hmm. that I'm bleeding money, but I'm so happy. So now, now I have factual, concrete evidence that it's not the money that brought the happiness. I was finding happiness with money, but it wasn't bringing it to me. And so now I'm losing money and having a fantastic time. So it's not just money. It's certainly finding that thing you love without a doubt. I wish I was poor sooner. (laughs) Had I started sooner, I would be wealthy. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. The problem would have worked itself out had I started in 92. I assure you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's a whole timeline process involved in there. Yeah, Miss So says I would go back and do better in school and become a hacker. Oh, Mm. Interesting. All right. Uh, Marcus has ultimately thought, uh, I think there are scenes from my life I'd like to relive. No changes, just go back to it. Just to see it again. That would be interesting. You you know, again, if you want to just file into the conceit of this book, you'd be a bystander Mm -hmm. though, right? So if it's like a- I don't hmm. know, but first love or you, you know, met somebody for the first time. Now you're oh. watching it. It's kind of creepy. Now you're a voyeur. <laughs> you're a voyeur, yeah. <laughs> so, whew, I got moves. Look at that. Yeah. Hey, is that your dad watching us make out? <laughs> My 18-year-old back was very limber. Look at oh, that. Oh, goodness. Mm-hmm. Strong. Yeah. I think I would do something that perhaps would involve some more money, but mostly it's like emotional yeah. content yeah. things. It's like- Oh, yeah, little regrets. Just little little tiny regrets I'd love to just yeah. get rid of. <laughs> yeah. Like wash those from your conscience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I guess I, in that sense, Kat, yeah, there are, there are moments that I know of every now and then I think of that I'm not proud of. I'm embarrassed yeah. of, oh, how did I say that or do right? that? Right. Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I suppose if I could rectify those types of moments, that would be great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Rick says, I think the challenge oh. would be to get your past self to believe your future self. But what if you both know the number 69, Rick? He goes on to say, we don't truly understand things until we experience them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. You know, and I, true. Think of, I think about that in the context of my children. And then I immediately think about the, that in the context of my parents, where mm. I had moments in my life where parents were like, trust me on this. You don't mm. know what you're doing. I've been there. And then I go, whatever, I'm living my life, man. You're not the boss of me. Yeah. <laughs> but you and have to figure it out on your own. You do. Yeah, you had right. to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Now I could uh, tell you that, uh, you know, sort of in, in spite of how heavy things could get time traveling because of the kinds of things you might want to revisit. I want to assure you that Amy's book is fun and light and heart moving. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's a pleasure to read and a, a real joy to sort of go on this journey with her. She's got quite awesome. a, a good sense of humor about the whole thing. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's something that you you find out at the very beginning of the book, you start getting the, the vibe of it. Uh, so I definitely recommend it as if you like time travel, like we do, or want to revisit the 19 late 1970s, like uh, Amy does. I certainly recommend uh, you cannot mess this up. A true story that never mm-hmm. happened. <laughs> <laughs> great that. title. Yes, it is a great title. <laughs> okay. So, hey, uh, we'll be back in just a moment with the author of the book. Our guest today, Amy Wineland Daughters. 
guest. Today is the author of the award-winning novel, You Cannot Mess This Up, a true story that never happened. In it, an only semi-fictional version of the novelist is unwittingly hurled back in time from 2014 to her childhood home in 1978. There, she's forced to spend Thanksgiving with her nuclear family, including her 10-year-old self. And while she's assured nothing she does during her 36-hour trek in the past will affect the future, she redefines her difficult relationships with her family members and may have changed herself. It's an equally funny and heartwarming tale that will inspire you to take a similar journey. You can find it anywhere books are sold, including at bookshop.org, where you can buy it from a small town bookseller. Please welcome to the show, Amy Wineland Daughters. Hey, Amy, how you doing? Hey, thanks for having me on. Super excited to be here. It's my absolute pleasure. Your your book uh, hits upon so many things, you know, even before reading it, just... Um, Knowing the synopsis, I mean, I think even the first sentence of the synopsis, the fact that the time travel was involved piqued my interest because I'm a huge fan of time travel. And of course, you're traveling back to an era, the era in which I grew up in as, you know, a fellow Gen Xer like you. And what a journey it was. It was so so pleasant to be able to revisit so many things I hadn't even, even little details that I haven't even considered. Small things like, I don't think this is giving too much away, playing gong show, you know, with my sister when we were growing up. I'm intrigued. Did you, so you played gong show with your sister as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, we, oh, that's, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, there were so many things in there where I, it was kind of a similar thing like you're suggesting. It's like, well, oh, OK, that wasn't specific to me. It was universal. You know, we grew up in a time where you couldn't confirm on the Internet that other people think things, too. <laughs> so, no, no, because we didn't post on Facebook about how we played or mom didn't how we played gong show last night. And so but I, I've done a lot of, you know, interviews just like everybody else does with a book. And I've never met one person who played gong show or admitted they played gong show. So you and I. <laughs> And your sister and my brother and sister need to get together and get the gong show going. <laughs> get the tambourine out. Yeah. I don't remember. Oh, wow. I don't remember what we used for a gong. That's a good question. We might have just said gong. I don't know that we had anything to bang on. But uh, so I'm a big fan of time travel because many times in my life I considered if I can only go back to that moment. And of course, your book is exactly that. But did prior to even writing this was part of the uh, I guess the you know impetus to write this book, doing those sort of exercises? Well, I have always, you know, I set off on the journey of writing this book. It was just an idea in my head for several years. And I am fascinated with time travel as well. Like yeah. I've read most every time travel book. I think I've watched most every time mm -hmm. travel movie. And I, you know, I go look and see if there's something new. Right. I'm fascinated. And then I love and I watched a lot of your episodes. I love everything from, I like vintage stuff. So I like history. I like nonfiction. I like all that, but specifically stuff from my own past. Right. You know, I'm kind of fascinated with vintage items, the Sears catalog, like, you know, before the internet even happened, I was already looking at, so I think that passion combined with the fact that I wanted to write a funny book, a funny book about time travel. And that was kind of my idea. And then I started just randomly picking. So I wasn't super deliberate about the time. I just wanted to be young enough that I wasn't a teenager yet when mm -hmm. I went back to my childhood. But I wasn't so little that I wasn't, you know, cognitively registering something. So that's where the idea for the book came from. Yeah. Yeah. And much. And again, you know, I've, I love time travel. 
And I don't know that I would love travel, but I think I would love time travel concept, even apart from the fact that fantasizing about being able to do it myself. But but the thing that always kept me from taking these exercises too far with my own time travel was this idea of changing my present in a negative way. You know, to think that, oh, I wish I had, you know, said this when I said or hadn't said that when I should have said this other thing would automatically take me down this causality path of, but then I wouldn't have the kids I have and the wife right. I have. And-, and and that's the beauty of fiction because this book is really kind of a memoir, mm-hmm. you know, wrapped in the tortilla of beautiful <laughs> fiction that is time travel, which gave me a blank check really because a, people, a lot of people ask me how much of this is memories and how much of this is made up. Well, sure. a lot of the dialogue's made up because that has to be, but a lot of the memories are real. So I painted myself the safe space where, Nothing was going to change in my current time, obviously, because it was a fictional journey. But, you know, the book ended up being kind of a catharsis without meaning to, because I went Mm. back in my own head thinking I was going to write a funny time travel book. But when I took myself back, I was like, wait a second, guys, if you go back in time to visit your 10 year old self and your parents who are now the same age as you, oh my gosh, feelings.com that I did not (laughs) intend to encounter, you know, but, but it created this. And that's why I think the book has been so relatable because you immediately put yourself in my shoes or the, the, the big Amy, you know, and like, and say, what would big, you know, what would big will do in the Mm -hmm. same scenario? And that's the beauty of it. It's, it's time travel in our imagination, which is safe because it, it, because it doesn't impact what we do in the future. Only it enhances it, I believe. And it's interesting that, first of all, I'm surprised that you wouldn't have, I guess that you, you didn't go into the book trying to explore these things because I had imagined maybe in (laughs) therapy or just in your own self, you know, your work that you thought of this way of addressing these things and not stumbling on it. No, and I did stumble on it because I literally thought this is going to crack people up and we're going to talk. I'm going to get my outfits out of the Sears catalog, you know, and I'm going to, you know, I had five boxes of stuff I researched. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is so, I mean, it's almost profound, the the travel back in time. So it was super backwards. Yeah, I think that's kind of my personality, which is, you know, probably not good to admit here and, uh, you know, in this forum, but- that's me. So oh, I'm glad you said it. I did imagine you, you know, rifling through catalogs to pick out some of these outfits because you do you do provide the color <laughs> describing folks different. And there's a lot of characters that come in and out of it that have very particular outfits in and I could picture them almost immediately out of some catalog. Yeah, I have it in a box. So <laughs> the wardrobe department. So I think it's interesting, though, you know, throughout the book, you can see that um, memories are, are, are malleable that, uh, you know, and, and certainly, you know, we, we've read these studies that, you know, have since we've since had since in decades since that the more you recall something, the more you write over it and change it almost like, you know, when we would record cassettes uh, with cassettes when we were kids, it starts losing its quality over time and changing and that sort of thing. But, uh, but that also said your character, Amy, in the book, uh, this journey for her, she almost needs to confirm that certain things were true or as a result of that is, you know, I think you just, you gain insights, but I think also describe as getting some sort of freedom. You're able to let some things go. But I guess for real Amy, you, and I realize this is going to be, now this has become complicated to talk to you about Amy. <laughs> Amy oh no, Amy. we can talk about her in the third person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if, if memories, memories aren't reliable or like you conceded that you had to make some of these up, I guess how effective are they? Can they still be in really you, Amy, you know, getting a benefit from them. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I think they're, and I think both sides of what you said is true. One, they were contrived. So 
uh, they weren't, it's a good question. They aren't, so they weren't, you know, the, the truth of the experience isn't real, I guess I can say, yeah. you know? And so, but, but I, I think the, 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 the setting free that was absolutely real on two levels. One, I, it, let's say I just wrote the book in a vacuum and it never got published. Well, I still wrote that stuff down. That's yeah. the power of writing. Mm -hmm. And so I confronted the reality of my feelings about the memories the fact that they are flawed, because if I was 47 or 55, I would remember, I would look at that scene differently than I did as this 10 year old kid who was completely clueless, you know, mm -hmm. and the second part that was so freeing. So the one step of freedom is I, I said it out loud to myself. Mm. This, this is what happened. You know, I'm getting real with myself and, and, and the book, you know, it was my first book and I didn't realize what a perilous thing this was to do to write about something so personal, you know, so it was very freeing that I just got it out there in my own mind. Like, this is real. I unpacked it almost like a diary, but the real freedom was, Will, when, when the book got published mm -hmm. and, and it got sent out for everybody to read. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing you've ever done. But how free is, how freeing is to think that my life wasn't exceptional. My childhood wasn't exceptional. Mm -hmm. It was very relatable, but how freeing is for me to take it seriously enough to let it out into the world. Mm -hmm. And then, then I just kind of owned it. And again, it was so backwards because I didn't intend to have that experience. But now I look at little Amy and big Amy in that book who are real people to me. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you guys go, let's go because they're out there free in the world. And my stuff matters to me. It doesn't have to be on Oprah or good morning America to matter, right. but it matters to me. And I think that's one of the really powerful elements of this story and relatable elements is all our stuff matters to us. And it became important enough to me unintentionally for me to one, to write about it, and two, to put it out there into the universe, including to have my mother read it and my mm -hmm. father and my brother and sister. And that process is so powerful. And I don't think you have to write a book to do that. I think you can talk to your safest closest friend or spouse or whoever your person is, or you write it in a diary and you just start to take your own stuff seriously. Right. You know? Now, as you just mentioned, you put it out there in the world. And in fact, folks that are featured in the book, because it's you know, a lot of real characters, real people are characters in this book, read it. What, <laughs> and at the beginning of the book, uh, this isn't a spoiler because you read this pretty early on. Your family is not a family that talks about things. Right. So how, what's the process of, trying to recreate these memories when you're, you know, you have that, I guess that your family has that sort of philosophy. Let's, let's talk about what happened. Right. Well, and a lot of it, I relied on myself. I did talk to my parents as I wrote it and I mean, they knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I think that that theme of talking about not talking about our feelings, is so common to this generation who you're in touch with mm. through your incredible podcast. And I think a lot of us, I don't know about you, had similar experiences that there was a whole lot less talking about your feelings in the 70s and 80s than there is as parents in the new millennium, mm -hmm. for right. sure. We're, we unpack a lot of stuff daily at this house, which we never did at the Wineland house. Um, so I did, I, you know, I relied a lot on my own memories. And my dad told me, he said, you know, don't ask for permission. Just do what you think you need to do. And I did discuss things with my mother about, you know, there's the narrative of her parents and my dad's parents and the, the kind of conflict that I hadn't seen as a 10 year old. Right. And so I talked to some, I talked to her a little bit about that. And a, a lot of it is I went to, I spent several weekends in hotel rooms with VCR tapes and family albums. And I just kind of immersed myself back in that time. Wow. And, and I 
basically wrote myself back in time and felt like not like I'd gone on some metaphysical level, like I laid in a bed, like in that somewhere in <laughs> somewhere time. time. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I, I pulled the penny no, out. No, don't do that. I screwed the whole thing yeah. up. And there was a lot less hot people in my back in time <laughs> than there was in his, you know, and the, and, the, and the hotel was way nicer, the Grand Hotel. But no, I, I did that where I just kind of immersed myself and began to remember and remember how I saw myself. So a lot of those memories were just based on myself because my brother and sister's reaction was, oh my God, because I have a much better memory. And I think that's a writer thing than they do. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh my God, you made half of that up. I was like, no, that's true to me. And that's another freeing thing. Like right. that's true to me because I don't have to have my brother and sister validate my memories to say that my memories were true. Yeah. And uh, my mother and I discuss this from time to time because, you know, I rem I have my perspective. My, my sister has a perspective and sometimes my mother tries to reconcile even those two and we're close right. in age and she has a third perspective. And it's interesting to see how now, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later of rewriting these things that, we're the hero of our own story. So maybe even that plays a role in how we created the narrative that got us to where we are. Right. No. And, and I like what you said earlier about how over time we kind of write and rewrite in our own heads. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's a survival technique. Not that we're all, it doesn't mean you had to survive something horrific to have that survival mentality, but right. we have to wake up in our own heads every day. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a much more complicated process than we give ourselves credit for because we're not just we're not just replaying what happened when we were 10 i mean we've got all these memories that stack up that come up to the moment of february 15th 2024 yeah. you know and i think we rewrite things so we can live in reality just enough in reality to to cope or to find joy or you know to navigate our todays so yeah. And you're right. Growing up in the seventies and eighties, as you said a moment ago, it was the suck it up sort of generation. You know, it's you're fine. That that was the right, conversation right. we had. Right. Don't bleed on the white carpet. Yeah. You know, but you'd see an injury and dad be like, just get off the white carpet in the dining room. Like go, go get on the gold carpet right. or on the fake bricks, you know, die somewhere else. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And we do have, you know, in some points in your book, you're, I felt like you were a little hard on, maybe little Amy or maybe big Amy in the sense that you weren't aware of what was going on or even with, had you described a little Amy sort of maybe, uh, you know, lack of sort of perception or perspective on what was happening with her parents, et cetera. But you're right. We didn't. And I guess I thought that because it's easy to think that now, because we have the vocabulary for it today, I guess, to your point, right. we didn't have that kind of, you know, talk about uh, emotions or feelings or that sort of thing. Or right there, or that my mother was, my mother was acting out on the fact that she was trying to make everything perfect for her mother. Right. And I was, I was kind of that kid who's off the, you know, in, in a, in a delightful way in some ways, but in, in, you know, she was trying to get us all to fit in a box so she could just survive her current situation in the seventies and eighties. And uh, you know, that's what she needed for me. And I was kind of off the chain. And I thought in rereading the book, I think I was hard on little Amy, but that all those, all that narrative about my reaction to myself, my younger self was based on me. You know, like I said, these series of hotel rooms where I watched these VCR tapes mm. that had been, you know, converted from the, the old eight millimeter, you know, Right. Uh, camera. My dad had the super eight camera going, mm -hmm. but every time I watched her, I was like, Oh my God. And those were real reactions to what I saw of myself oh. when I did the research. And so, yeah, it was hard, but I also think it was just true. I think that was real. And somebody else's reaction might've been totally different 
to their their younger self. But what I saw on the tape, I was like, oh my God, wow. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I thought little Amy's hilarious. I'd love to know little Amy. She's hysterical. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think by the end, I, by the end of writing the book and by the end of the journey of the narrative of the story, I did realize that little Amy was, you know, somebody, it's almost like, and this sounds so not me like so psychoanalyst but it was almost like i found this person within me that i had kind of lost like she's awesome and i hope i'm more like her mm. than i am like my 52 year old i'm not 52 i'm like 55 but i'm just saying you know you know whatever where i am right now there's so much there was so much or there is so much good in her that can be that's another thing that happened that i want to be more like her mm. than i am than i was before i started writing the book Oh, that's interesting to discover some aspect of yourself that maybe you, you're not harnessing today. But, you know, the process of going through the 70s and 80s, we were kind of certain things were beaten down, you know, that we were. And I think and maybe this is sort of what you're getting at. It even to your point, like your, your family, you sort of describe it as sort of an exaggerated way of this idea of suburbia and living in a certain box and anything outside the out of the norm was sort of, you know, frowned upon. They sort of stuff you back down. But I think that's a common thing for a lot of us that grew up during that generation. It's like, don't rock right. the boat. Right. No, you you fit in the box because, you know, and that's I was this kid who collected baseball cards and read pro football digest. And, you know, I turned out it, I got a business degree and I ended up writing about sports, you know, and then I wrote these books and uh, that was a part of me early on. And I actually think my parents did a great job because I discussed that in one of the chapters, like who's picking all this stuff out because right. I have the Barbie mansion, I have the Barbie mansion, which I love the sunshine family, you know, with the weird dad's beard, like creepy dad, you know, and I, I played with all that. I had the Barbie head. I had the Malibu camper van, but I also had that electronic football set you right. know where, where you lost the ball and then you had the carpet buds in there because you couldn't find it anymore you know right. and my brother and i played hot wheels and part of my story too is i had a brother and a sister and so i was the middle kid so i played with all of it and i was a tomboy so i got paper dolls with my sister barbies with my sisters you know my brother and i would play other things and so um i think parents actually did a good job of you know, turning me into a competent person mm -hmm. who, who can play, you know, I'm a mom who has kids, so I could play either thing. I'm good at Nerf guns and, you know, I, I can, I can do easy bake oven. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. did you, you know, did you ever, did you ever figure out how you got all those sports almanacs? Like who was buying those for you? Yeah, that was dad. Oh, it was? I was my dad. Yeah. And my dad, as I, as I grew up, I realized that, um, I, I wrote the book, like I, like it was a surprise to me, but my dad and I were like sports best friends, okay. you know? And so he kind of fed that, mm. you know, that whole, cause he, cause I was his kid that liked sports the most. So mm, that's interesting. I'm trying not to give him anything about your book, but it's interesting now to think about how there's a scene and maybe it's too pivotal, pivotal to, to bring up, but where folks are, uh, let's say criticizing little Amy for her interests. Right. And dad doesn't right. say a word. It almost like now it makes me think is because he had this secret kind of that's what you know, I'm not going to I don't want to say anything because that's my connection to her. Right. He, and I hadn't thought about it from that perspective because my dad like avoided conflict like no one else I'd ever seen. And so I wrote that because he wouldn't have rocked the boat, especially where there was turbulence in that, you know, undercurrent scene. He would just wanted to get out of it in one piece. And that's his 
you know, that's his MO. You know, he used to have this thing when we would go to like a party or a gathering and he would like give me the signal if there was a need to be rescued from something. And we did that with each other and be like, you know, a little like not an ear pull, not like a Carol Burnett, yeah. but he'd like make a facial expression or I would. And then we'd come across and be like, hey, dad, I need something, mm -hmm. you know, and he'd be out because he wouldn't have to have conflict. Right. So. I think the thing that I've learned in, you know, years of therapy and reading a dozen self-help books or, or such that, you know, I guess to what we we're talking about earlier about the memories, we, I don't know that I need to know specifically what happened so much as that I can say this, this is a phrase I learned, I don't know, in one of these books or therapy, that people try to do their best. So when thinking about my parents, for example, they did the best they could. They weren't setting out to be bad at being a parent or bad at being, they did the best they could. And with that, I have found you know, a sort of peace and forgiveness in, because uh, again, I, 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 like everybody, and like you say this in your book, we're all struggling to do our best. And right. so I can't right. really judge it so much as say, I understand it from that perspective. And so I'll let it go and move on and be the person I can be. And I think that's one of the most comforting takeaways from the book is that, you know, there's, is that, you know, me, seeing my parents at my same age, especially my mother as a woman, you know, right. that, she, that she was just doing her best and, and she wasn't perfect. And what a comforting thing for someone who's just doing their best today, you know, as a mom, as a wife, as all those things, you know, and she, she had the deck stacked against her more than I did in 1978, you know, because she was working with a lot less tools that women have now. Right. And uh, they were both doing the, the best they could in their marriage. And there's so many observations in that book, specifically about my mom, who I had the more difficult relationship with over and over again. I see her as being someone who's just, trying to do her best. And she has way more going on mm -hmm. than I thought she did. And only as a mother and as a woman and as a grown person, could I appreciate that. And that, you know, you asked what my family's reaction to the book was my mom's favorite part was me investigating like one, like where's the laundry. That woman just did the laundry, even mm -hmm. though all these people are in her house, you know, right. and two, my dad's the best guy. Cause my dad's kind of the hero to all three of his are their children. You know, my dad's a great guy, but was he the best guy for her? She loved that because she loved my dad. My dad's passed away now, but, oh, um, but, but for her to be, you know, to, for her to be, you know, appreciated in that way, I think that she got so much out of that. And I did because it changed our relationship. I was like, Hey guys, she's just doing her best. Like I can. And please God tell me my kids aren't going to write a time travel book where they go back to their, their selves when they're 10 years old. And that goes back to what you just said. We are all doing our best, you know, in the moment that we're in, you know, and we have to give ourselves credit for that and our parents. That's true. You're right. That second thing may be the harder thing to do. And probably because of the generation, you know, that we, in which we grow up or the era in which we grew up, I think my kids, the way I'm raising my kids, at least is to have the, uh, you know, the vocabulary and the emotional intelligence to be able to forgive themselves as they, even at their younger ages go along. But it's something I struggle with to this day. Uh, yeah. Not <laughs> quieting that voice, you know, that. Uh, oh, absolutely. 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 Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one thing that, I mean, the process of writing this book helped me with that voice because I just, I think I just understood myself better afterwards and just mm -hmm. in watching 
little Amy and then watching my reaction to the whole scene. It just, it changed a lot of my relationships um, in a very good way. But it, I mean, but the process of doing that was scary because I was going to share it. You know, when I shared that book with my people, I was living in Ohio at the time and I'm from the Houston area, just like the book says. But so I, the book, I know I, I got the book deal. The book was going to be published that following spring. And my friends were like, look, you've got to let them read the book. And I hadn't let my family read it. So it was Christmas, Will. And I was down there and I had copies printed. It was before the arcs even came out, like the galleys. And right. so I, I literally did not give it to them for Christmas. I gave it to them and then drove back to Ohio the same day. Like got my car. Was like, like, like you set off a bomb and then drove away. Right, no, and I just ran. But, but I'm, you know, my friends really made a difference because the way this played out was they all read the book. My brother and sister loved it. Like the gong show scene, you know, they'll never get over. They loved it so much. And they love that it's been discussed, you know, Mm -hmm. and the the pillow, the whole, you know, the pillow that (laughs) in question, that's a true story, but (laughs) I won't give that away because that's so great. But um, so they all read it. Great reaction from my, my uh, brother and sister, my mom, I was really worried about. She didn't say much, but she said she liked it. We started having those conversations about her and dad and her as a woman. And then my dad was the last one to read it. And he didn't read it till March of that year the book came out. And then literally he reads the book and he texts me and he's like, Amy, you know, I enjoyed your trip back in time. It was, it was a trip back in time for me too. I believe you handled the delicate matter so well, you know, I'm so proud of you, blah, blah, blah. And then he would always sign every text with like 18 dog emojis, dog emoji, dog emoji. I was like, who is this old coop with the dog emoji? And he always did it. But Will, that was the last text I ever received from my father. Oh. And so it's like two weeks before the book went to the, the printing press and dad passed away suddenly. But what a gift right. wow. uh, that my friends encouraged me to do it. You know, and my dad, who was my best friend, you know, but for if I would have missed because he missed the second book, he missed a lot. But if I would have especially this book because of his place in it and because of what he told me to do, kind of gave me a blank emotional check to write. If he had not read the book, I would have been devastated, you know, and and, and just goes to show you when friends encourage you to do something that's hard and that's, you know, and and they follow through on because my friends were on me. They were like, listen you got to do it. And what a gift though, because now I have that forever. I have that text on my phone for the rest of my life. You know, the dad was proud of me and dad thought the book was good, you know? And so I went on the book journey without dad, but with him, because I knew what absolutely what he'd say about the book. Cause he, he said it. Right. Yeah. You had his blessing. That's wow. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. That's a great story. Um, mm-hmm. Your book is look as heartwarming as it is. It's equally hilarious. And there are certainly a lot of laugh out loud moments. And uh, I won't, again, I won't spoil any of them because usually the ones that sort of surprise you. Uh, but um, I'm wondering if based on, you know, what I've what I perceive of you from this book, at least that your humor didn't develop maybe as a reaction as a, at a young age to sort of the dynamic, the family dynamics back then. I think that's probably true. I think um you know, it was probably a coping mechanism. It was something that, you know, I'm I'm. I think I'm naturally humorous, but I think that came out because it was the thing that could set me apart from my brother and sister as the middle child, as the second girl, you know, and I think it was also a coping mechanism. And one of the things I'm proud about, proudest about the book, and I just reread it, and I don't know anyone who's written something that big, you do, 
I think and you go through the process of editing it, writing it, all that, you never want to see it again. There you have like a divorce <laughs> period from it, yeah. you know, yeah, sure. and I recently reread it. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing I think I'm the proudest of is how there is such depth of the emotion, like you said, the heartwarming and the nostalgia, but that sometimes the most poignant mo- moments in the book are mixed with some zap of humor. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really, I really like that. And I'm speaking not as I'm not blowing smoke up my own butt here. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, I like that part of the book. That's something I like. Cause once you've written a book, there's a lot of pages where you're like, Oh my God, page 77, please stop me. I can never read page 77 again. I'm just using that. That's not a specific yes. page, but you <laughs> hate parts of it because you, you know, when you, it takes, three or four years and it takes a year to get it published and then a year to go through all the editing. And then by then we've moved on. Like I'm a different person than the big Amy who wrote this hot mess, you know, (laughs) but I still stand by, but I do like that. The the way the humor is woven in with the, with some of the harder parts of the book. Right. And I can look, I I concur this book again in the, the the facility at which you and E (laughs) we both have a copy at which you, Right. It's just, it makes it so uh, easy to, uh, I don't know, not not enjoy. There was a word that escapes me now, but it's just sort of this nice entry that sort of just, I don't know, pulls you in, I guess. Just, well, thank uh, you. That's a, that's a high compliment. I appreciate it. I wonder if this is one of those things, you know, our show, we talk about 1980s pop culture for the most part. And when our show is the best, it's talking about how it has maybe some relevance to today, either the people it made us be or how it's continued to inspire, uh, you know, media of today. But I'm, I'm wondering if our kids will be able to or need to look back on their decades in the way that we do, either because technology has supplanted or supplanted, uh, whatever the word is, surplanted. You're a writer, you know words. I, yeah, I think it's supplanted. <laughs> supplanted. I'm not sure. I mean, I, yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm going to go with that too. Supplanted, technology supplanted our need to recall things. So maybe in that sense, you know, I don't even need to have nostalgia in that way because I could just look it up, but I did that day. Or the, the the technology also makes things so, this requirement almost it seems to go hand in hand with this sort of instant gratification, you know, where things are constantly changing, where I don't even have an interest in what happened prior. And that's super, that's a super, super interesting question. I, you know, and, and you're right, it's all going to be lined up for them. They're not going to have to go find one VCR tape that has one (laughs) clip because they're going to have their whole life, you know, on a device that they can recall. So does that take away that? Because I think one of the things that connect us, the reason I'm talking to you is because we share this love of nostalgia Mm -hmm. of this time, you know, and there's a group of us, you know, on Instagram, there's a group of people that are like-minded and like-hearted, you know, for some reason, this brings us the glow, but has this technology cost them the glow? And I think that's a yet unanswered question, but how sad would it be if that's another thing that this costs our children and our, you know, our next generation. But, you know, that's, it's, that's an interesting thing. Cause like you said, on one hand, um, it's there for them. So if it yep. is a nostalgic person, you can go back, but two, it's too easy. You don't have to fight for it. Yeah. Part of the, I don't know, there is something that's romantic and exciting about the exercise of excavating these memories, right? Look, going, looking for them and finding them. Right. Like, you know, it's, know. it's like thinking of a photo. Cause you can probably think of a photo from when you were a kid or everyone who's listening probably can. Sure. Where is that photo and the, and the quest to see it and hold it in your hands mm-hmm. again is very, it's like a palpable piece of history, you know? And, and I think that's a, another thing the book talks about is when I wrote myself back in time, I kept wanting to 
get my phone out and record the moments I was seeing, you know, back in time. Cause I was like, I've got to hold on to this. I've got to have this. And I think that's a reflection on the 2014 me, as opposed to the, the 1978 me who would have never thought that in a million years, but this, but, but we have this belief that to make a memory real, we have to have a recording of it. And, Mm -hmm. And that makes me think about another plane of, you know, that, tinkers with how we remember it. And that's what this book is so much about. Like you said, memories are malleable. But if we have the memory recorder for us, Mm -hmm. can we not use it like we talked about and kind of reshape it into what we need it to be to be today? So is that another cost? Is that it's just there? You know, it reminds me of that commercial that's out right now, which I love, where it's like the marriage people and they do the replay. You know, and they're like, have oh, you right. seen that? <laughs> yes. Right. And now if someone can, like if my brother can come up to me and say, no, it's on my iPhone, I can tell you exactly what happened during the gong show. Kind of ruins it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a Black Mirror episode of it like this where it's, it destroys a relationship because they're able to just say, well, look, this is what you said. Show it on the screen. But that's almost what, that's almost what your, like your suggestion could lead to. And, and not in, in a less extreme way in yeah. my opinion, but yeah. in the very least it de-romanticizes it. And I guess the extreme is just, uh, yeah. Causing conflict in a way that's unanticipated maybe. Right. And so when was the last generation to get off the hook on that? Like where this turned, because really it was bef- the first part of the internet doesn't even really count. It doesn't seem like, cause it wasn't personal at the beginning, you know, right. where it was the, the social media and the, the personal recording devices, like the, like the flip phone, and the beeper, this is not their fault. Like they're <laughs> off the hook, right? Except maybe that there's a grandfather, you know, or grandmother of what came after right. like the inevitable sort of evolution of the technology. But right. you, I love how in the book, you know, you remind me, I love how you do that. How you, like, I want to capture this on my electronics. Or you make these notes, uh, Google this certain thing notebook. when I get back. Google this. And I've got to tell you, at least two occasions, I was like, I want to Google that too. What, what? And I did try Googling some of those things, including whether your grandmother, the, the name that's in here really was a writer, a fashion uh, editor. And she was at, at the Waco, yeah, Waco uh, Tribune. Tribune or, yeah. yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. And, and that's something that no one had told me, but as I researched the book, wow. I uncovered some of this stuff. And even some, even some of the, the things that I uncovered were, conversations mostly with my mother that she told me after the fact. And I was like, why, why would you tell someone that? Mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorite parts is the whole thing about how, where the, the relations happened that, that like where my parents actually conceived me is that because they, they, that was in the process of writing the book. Right. They were like, Oh, I think we were in Ohio. I was like, wait a second. This changes my whole life. I'm not from Ohio. But you live in Ohio, don't you? I do. I'm not originally from here. I'm originally from Jersey City, New Jersey, but I've been here for 20, over 20 years now. So. Right. I love Ohio. I lived there for 12 years, but it's funny how Mm -hmm. I didn't want to identify with the the state (laughs) capital without a dome on it. Like I felt like that nautical flag, I didn't want to be a part of it. So. And it's funny that (laughs) this drives my wife crazy when we'll be on a trip and uh, someone will say, where are you guys from? For years, I'd say New Jersey while my wife says Ohio. Right. And I, I, I now will say Ohio in these circumstances, but I don't feel, I guess, so Ohio that I was offended by those, that com- the comment you made about having to, uh, you know, have chili with cinnamon and turn in your cowboy <laughs> boots and all that sort of thing. Right. Right. That was, and part of that was me going off on a, another, you know, humorous rant. That's the other thing that's great about this book. The editor that worked with me, um, there was so many things that I thought were funny that we had to cut, you know, cause you can't, the book's already pretty long, you know, yeah. but, <laughs> but when I sent her the, 
advanced reader copy. I wrote a note and I wrote in the inside, like the first three pages of the book, I wrote all the cut scenes. Like, here's what's not in this book because of your wise counsel and guidance. <laughs> and she said no one had ever done that before. And she thought it was great because, you know, most of the things that had been cut were one, the nostalgia, you know, because I could have just gone on and on forever and ever. I had so much research and I loved it so much. But I think we did a great job of hitting between too much and not enough. And then the funny business, because again, that was my whole purpose of writing the book was to be funny and to be nostalgic. So yeah, I agree. It's an absolute perfect blend of nostalgia and humor. And again, this emotional journey that I think, I think for me, you know, I, I've been doing this kind of work, but I think for folks who haven't been maybe had that opportunity to be so introspective or appreciate how a journey through time in their own memories could be helpful. I think it'll inspire folks to take that trip. Thanks, Amy. I really appreciate uh, you spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on and let me talk about my story. I really appreciate it. A really fantastic book. You know, I don't talk to authors unless I actually enjoy their books. And I really enjoyed Amy's book. It was heartwarming. It's funny. It's emotional. It's a lot of it hit close to home. You know, if you grew up in that era, odds are you had a family that or some character that's represented in this book is, I would guess, more than one, you know, or recognizable. It's somebody that you know. Uh, and the kind of journey that she goes on, sure, there's this bit of, you know, this conceit, this sort of science fiction-y conceit. But, but at the heart of it, it's a grounded story where it allows her character certainly to reevaluate, reexamine these different things uh, from her childhood that she questions whether they were real and how, to what extent they, you know, uh, affected her adulthood. And it's a journey that, look, if you haven't gone on yourself already, maybe you're afraid to, maybe you don't know how to. This is an easy entree into doing that. You could, in, in the very least, you know, vicariously maybe begin that sort of self-introspective journey by seeing how Amy does it in this novel. You cannot mess this up. A true story that never happened. Check it out. Go to bookshop.org, though. Seriously, you'll support an independent bookstore. Uh, and otherwise, you know, it's the same experience as buying it from those, those big places. All right. Hey, on behalf of Kat, John, and myself, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now.